Good morning, church. I'm Rusty. It's my name. If uh, we haven't met uh, and you're here for the first time, welcome here. It's always one of the highlights of my week just to be with you and to worship together with you here uh, on Sunday mornings. You know, I have heard that story a bunch of times. Have you? You've heard it. You've read it. And, and in the first service, when that was being read, I got a new like insight that I'd never seen before. Uh, it, we, we just heard how when Jesus was on the cross, they offered him wine with gall to drink. They lifted it up to kind of maybe numb his pain. And it says Jesus refused the wine. And I thought, I've sometimes wondered why, you know. Uh, and, then I, and then I remembered back to when Jesus was uh, around the table, right? The day, day before with his last disciples, what did he say? I tell you. I won't drink the fruit of the vine with you until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I think he was waiting. He's saying time's not yet, and he's still waiting to drink that with us. You've heard the phrase, famous last words? Have you heard that? What does that mean? Famous last words. Well, that, that's kind of a reference to the fact that sometimes a person's last words before they die, maybe, are, can be kind of ironic, right? Kind of like, ooh, I wonder what this button does. That would be like an example of maybe famous last words. Um, I read that Oscar Wilde, uh, a famous Irish poet novelist, his, his last words before he died were, either this wallpaper goes or I go. The wallpaper is still there. Reading that Lawrence St. Lawrence, in the second century, he was killed by the Romans, a Christian. They killed him by grilling him over, like literally they barbecued him on a, on a big griddle. And uh, his final words are recorded were, turn me over, I'm done on this side. Kind of ironic, a little bit of humor, um, a way of saying, you can't take my soul from me. Uh, Oddly enough, well, it's kind of funny, actually. He is actually literally named by the Catholic Church the patron saint of cooks and chefs. And um, also the patron saint of comedians. Uh, famous last words. Sometimes that's a reference to the fact that those words can be ironic uh, or, or maybe poignant, like really meaningful right, uh, or, or candid, kind of straight from the heart. You ever dreamed of walking into your boss's office and just telling them what you really think? And maybe you thought, man, I just, I would love to go in there and tell them, give them a piece of my mind. Have you ever, maybe you've quit. You ever done that on your last day? You went in and you told them what you really thought. You were candid, famous last words. I remember my final sermon at my previous church in Blind River after being there nine years. It was really hard to write my last sermon. How do you do that? Like, what are the final words you say to a group of people that you've been in relationship with for nine years? I labored. It was not my best sermon, I don't think. It was really hard to be able to capture the words that, you know, final words should have as far as, you know, the, the, the meaning. Um, I'm sure people on their deathbed, as they say their goodbyes to those they love, as they realize their time is short and they may not have more words, they're probably not talking about the weather. They're probably not even talking about the jet scheme the night before, right? Those words are very important, thoughtful, meaningful words, 
famous last words. And so what we're doing beginning this morning through the Easter season is we're looking at the famous last words of Jesus. Because the Gospels record for us, if you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are seven things, seven statements Jesus makes on the cross. And as we explore these seven statements of Jesus, it's going to help us understand really more fully what the cross means and what it looks like for us to live a cross-shaped life. And so this morning, we're going to look at that first statement of Jesus we read there in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. But before we do that, um, I just want to talk a little bit about the cross for two minutes. Like, we see the cross a lot. We sing about the cross a lot. Um, Some of us, we wear it on jewelry. Maybe it's even tattooed on our skin. And I think it's really easy for us to forget the horror that the cross represents, right? And it's easy just to sanitize it. And what I don't want to do here is make you sick. So I'm going to walk the line between, I don't want to make you sick, but I also want to, as as we talk about the words that Jesus, especially these words on the cross, just to recapture in a way just some of the horror of what the cross represented. The the cross, of course, was a method of execution. the, The Romans, they didn't invent it, but they perfected it. And the reason that they adopted the cross for most, the most vile criminals was because every other way of dying, you know, hanging, stoning, burning, the pain ended too quick. They wanted to extend it, and they wanted to make the death slow, and so the cross was their answer to that. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And so if you know the story of Jesus, you know that before He went to the cross, uh, He was whipped on the back, got a cat of nine tails, uh, a whip, a bunch of leather strings, at the end of which were tied shards of, uh, sharp shards of glass and bone, which were uh, dragged with great force across Jesus' back 39 times, uh, and just kind of shredding his uh, skin and his muscles across his back. Don't rest on that image. Uh, a crown of thorns was pressed upon his head. He was beaten with fists and with rods. And then anyone who, who was uh, executed by the cross, they would be made to carry their own cross. Now, we think of the cross as one piece. There were two pieces of wood, but the post, the vertical post, just stayed in the ground because, you know, you would reuse it every weekend. So it, it just stayed there on top of the hill. Uh, but the person being executed would have to carry the cross beam on their own shoulders, about 100 pounds. They'd have to carry that to the place of their death. When they got there, they were laid on their back with their arms across this cross beam. And their hands then were nailed, actually their wrists, a a spike was driven through their wrists, kind of through the bones, and there's a nerve that runs. Uh, If you've ever watched the movie 127 Hours, it's all about that nerve that runs here. Uh, That nail was designed to pierce the nerve in those wrists, which resulted in just excruciating um, uh, ongoing pain. After they were nailed to this beam, the person was elevated, and that was affixed to the top of this pole where that person hung. And their legs were bent uh, at kind of a a 45-degree angle like this, but then off to the side, 45 like this, so their body was twisted like this, okay? And then their feet were nailed in that position. And the purpose of that was it made it really difficult to use your legs, the the strength of your legs to elevate yourself, to help you breathe. Um, And so it was really painful for the legs. And when the legs gave way, then the whole weight of the body was hanging on, um, on the arms, on the nails, and as uh, time went on, the, that weight caused the, um, the shoulders to, to dislocate and then eventually the wrists to dislocate as the body hung on the weights of those nails. In fact, um, 
they say that a person's arm, when they're crucified, would, it, would actually end up being six to nine inches longer just because of all the, all the, all the joints were, uh, were torn. And so the weight was hung there on those arms, and, um, and because of the weakness of the legs, eventually what caused a person to die was not blood loss. Um, it was suffocation because over time, over hours, even over days, sometimes it took nine days for someone to die. Um, they, uh, uh, it became more difficult for the person to be able to elevate their chest, to be able to breathe, and so eventually they just suffocated and died in that way. Uh, so that's what's happening to Jesus. Okay. This is the horror of the cross. And, and it's good to keep that in mind as you think of these very first words. Now, now the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, they only, they only give us this one statement of Jesus. Luke and John give us a few more that we'll look at over the weeks. But in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus, His first words on the cross are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's really not even a statement, right? It's a question. Of all the seven statements we're going to look at, this is the only question Jesus asks. And so this morning, we're going to settle on those words and, and just um, try to discover what it means that Jesus was forsaken. What does that mean for Him? And what does that mean for us 2,000 years later on the other side of the world? What difference does it make that Jesus was forsaken you know, at first glance, you might think that Jesus is asking a question because he's surprised. He's, he's confused and perplexed. Father, what is going on? When we drew up the plan in heaven, this is not how we drew it up. When I woke up last week, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Why is this happening? At first glance, you might think that's what this question is coming from. It's a cry of confusion, and it's not. It's not, because to understand what is happening here, we have to realize that what Jesus is saying is He's actually quoting the words, the opening words of David in Psalm chapter 22, word for word, these are the words of David. And so I just want to read for you just some, uh, a few verses from uh, Psalm chapter 22. So that psalm begins, again, these are the words of David, who's obviously going through some very difficult circumstances. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And now listen to what else is in this psalm and see if this sounds familiar. Verse 6, he says, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Isn't that what they said to Jesus as he was hanging there? Let God save him if he really is a savior. Verse 14, David says, I'm poured out like water. You might remember when Jesus was pierced aside, outflowed water and blood. All my, joint, all my bones are out of joint. Yeah, we just talked about that. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. Not sure what a potsherd is, but apparently it's dry. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. One of the seven statements of Jesus we're going to look at are the words, I thirst. Yes, I'm going to preach a whole sermon on the words, I thirst. Stay tuned. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. 
Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like a script for the cross? And it's supposed to be. Because when Jesus utters those words, what we're supposed to hear is things are going according to plan. Whose plan? God's plan. Jesus' plan. From the very beginning, this was the plan. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so we see Jesus saying in the Gospel of John, just listen to this few verses. Just to show you that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of confusion or surprise. Jesus says this in John 10, verses 17, 18. He says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Who's laying down his life? Jesus is laying down his own life. He has authority over his life to lay it down, to take it up. In other words, this is something he's not just accepting, this is something he's choosing to do. This is a part of his plan. John chapter 12, verses 27, 28, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly why he had come. He had come for this hour, and he had come for this horrible experience. And so he'll say as he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, what is it that you want? He knew everything that was going to happen to him. So when we hear the words of Jesus, this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, what, that's, what, what we're supposed to hear is, this is all going according to God's plan. You know, things look so horrible. They look so out of control. Where could God possibly be in all of this? And for Jesus to make that statement actually kind of says the opposite of what some might think. He's saying this whole situation is completely under the control, the sovereign control of God. So in the horror of that moment, um, Jesus is witnessing to the perfection of God's plan, even as he suffers. And that's a good reminder for us. As we face difficult circumstances and times when we may feel forsaken, we wonder, where is God? Right? That even in horrible situations, God is unfolding His perfect plan. But if we think that all Jesus is doing here in quoting this is he's just kind of um, trying to fulfill the words he was supposed to say, um, I think we're going to understate the idea. I, I, like, I don't think he was thinking, oh, now's my time to recite Psalm 22 so that they'll know what's happening. Actually, I think this is just coming from his soul. He's just living out his messianic calling. He's not trying to fulfill it. He's just, he is fulfilling it as God has planned. He's not just an actor reciting a line. So we don't want to understate this idea that he is forsaken because Jesus here, he is experiencing a real forsakenness. Now to be forsaken means to be abandoned, deserted, to be turned away from. 
You know, we will sing that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. There's a line in there that the Father turned his face away from Jesus, turned away, forsook him. But I don't know that it's a, what did that look like? I don't know that you and I can really, really know in that moment what was happening in his, in relationship with his father, what was happening in the spiritual realm. I, I don't, it's not that the father left him. And it's not even that the father stopped loving the son because Jesus said in John chapter 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. The father's love was just as real in that moment. It, it has always been. And yet Jesus in that moment, he's experiencing something new that he's never experienced for all eternity past, something terrible. And it's not the physical agony. It's not the pain. It's not the joints. It's not the nails. That's awful. But there's a deeper agony he's experiencing here that, which is causing him to cry out and that's spiritual agony. Spiritual agony. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the, a couple centuries ago, he said of, of this line of Jesus, this statement, his one moan is concerning his God. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? Or why has Judas betrayed me? Because Peter and all his disciples had deserted him. Judas had betrayed him. His people had rejected him, but that was not his moan. Those were sharp griefs, Spurgeon said, but this is the sharpest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That stroke would cut him to the quick. And so this deeper horror that Jesus is experiencing is this spiritual agony, some type of rupture in that harmonious, eternal fellowship he has his father. I don't know what that looked like, but he would have looked to heaven and, and he, can't, he doesn't even say the word father here. He says, my God, my God. And when he looks to his father, he doesn't see someone who is coming to his aid, someone who is coming to save him, someone who is coming to wrap his arms around him. No, when he looks up to his father, what he sees is the hands of his father around a sword, the handle of a sword. Because Jesus has already quoted the prophecy in Zechariah. You can throw that up there, Christian. Zechariah 13, 7, um, which says this, the words of God, Awake, so, uh, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus had already quoted that as something that is fulfilled in him. He is that shepherd that is close to the Lord Almighty. And what is God doing here? God is calling that sword to strike the shepherd. And so I think this is the picture when he looks up to God. This is maybe what he sees. He sees this scene. He sees the father and he sees the sword. This is the fulfillment of that scene in Genesis chapter 20-something, maybe 22, right? When Isaac goes up to the mountain with Abraham and God has instructed Abraham to sacrifice his son, not because God wants human sacrifice, but to show Abraham that he's a different God than all the other gods. This is a God who doesn't ask for you to give him your kid. He gives you his son. And so when Abraham is about to bring the knife down, the sword down on his son, God stops him and says, whoa, no, 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 no. I've provided a ram for you. 
and Isaac is spared, and the ram comes, and the ram is sacrificed on the altar. Jesus is that ram. This is that scene playing out. Just as Isaac had to carry up the bundle of firewood for his own execution, of which he was spared, Jesus carries the beam of the cross, the wood up to that place, but he is not spared, for he is that ram that the Father has offered And so this is what he sees, his father above him with the sword raised. And that's where his anguish comes from. It's a spiritual suffering. The spiritual suffering that comes from having to, what is that? Why was he forsaken? It's because in that moment, Jesus is bearing the curse of our sin, the curse of your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. He is bearing God's judgment on sin. And so Jesus, just the night before he is crucified, he will say in Matthew chapter 26, in the garden of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is so overwhelmed, he feels like the life is just being sucked out of me. He could die from a crushed spirit. The physical pain was one thing, but the spiritual agony was more horrible yet. And so Jesus in the garden would say, my father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken uh, away unless I drink it, may your will be done, I will drink the cup. And what is the cup? Well, the cup in the Old Testament always symbolized the judgment of God on the sins of the world. All the evil that's perpetrated, past, present, future, is in this cup, God's judgment on that. And on the cross, Jesus is drinking this cup. He's bearing the weight, the full weight of our sin. Paul would put it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in Him, for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. That's quite a statement. In that moment, the sinless one, the perfect one, perfect fellowship with God, the Father. Yet in that moment, Jesus becomes the very embodiment, the representation, the representative of our sin. And He bears the curse for us. And he is forsaken in that moment. Why? Well, Paul says, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So that we, that right, the righteousness of God, that means to have right relationship, to be restored, to be reconciled to God, to not be alienated, to not be separated, but to have right relationship and fellowship with God. He became sin so that we could be reconciled with God. That which belonged to us was given to Jesus, and that which belonged to Jesus was given to us. So he received what he didn't deserve, and we received what we don't deserve, and it's like this great transaction 
That's what's happening on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this transaction. Jesus is receiving what belongs to us so that we can receive what belongs to him. And if you go to Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, you see the strange pattern. Now, you know the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? Everything you read in the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's not a bunch of stories. It's one story. It's the story of God's plan of redemption for the world. And you see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. Like, like for instance, in Genesis, and some of you, if you're reading through the Bible in the year, you've maybe just read these stories. Why is there always these two brothers and the younger is always getting what belongs to the older? Right? Like, there's Isaac. He has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau's the oldest. The birthright is his. The blessing is his as the oldest one by right. But who gets it? It's given to the younger. Well, that's strange. It's not supposed to happen that way. Well, then Jacob himself has 12 sons. The second youngest is Joseph. And Joseph gets the favor, right? He's the one who gets the cloak of many colors. And the younger one gets the favor that should belong to the older. And now when Joseph himself has a family, he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the same thing keeps happening. What in the world? So in Genesis chapter 48, you see this. Jacob, whose name was also Israel, is now old. He's dying, and he's going to bless his... Now, um, his kids and grandkids, it says in Genesis 48, 10, now Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph, his son, brought Joseph's sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. And Joseph took both of his sons, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel, his dad's right hand, and he brought them close to him. Right? So, so he's doing what you're supposed to do. He's taking the firstborn and he's positioning the firstborn to receive the right hand of blessing that's given to the firstborn. And he puts the second son by, by the father's left hand to receive the hand that doesn't have the blessing. That's what you're supposed to do. And then something weird happens again. It says, Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, although he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand, and he, he thought he's just blind. The guy's blind, he's seen he doesn't know what he's doing, I'm going to help him out. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, no, my father, this one is the firstborn, Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. Because he knew what, exactly what he was doing. And God knew exactly what he was doing. He was, he, was, he was painting this picture. He was preparing us to see what God would do through his son on the cross. That at the cross, we see God crossing his hands... And taking the hand that belonged to us, the left hand, and placing that on Jesus, who bore our sin, and taking the right hand, the hand of blessing, the hand of favor that should have been on Jesus, and taking that and crossing that, and putting that on us, that we might receive the blessing and favor that belonged to Jesus. 
And that's what, that's what the cross is. It's the crossing of the arms of God so that Jesus is forsaken and we are forgiven. We are favored. I think that's a beautiful picture. It'll say in Isaiah chapter 53 that by His wounds, we are healed. So we need healing. We have wounds. And it's the one who is whole that is inflicted with wounds so that the one who has wounds can be healed. And again, He's given what belongs to us and we're given what belongs to Him. God crosses His arms. And so when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this is the great thing. This is the great news of the gospel. God gives to us right? Um, all, that is, all that belongs to Jesus by right as the perfect Son of God becomes ours as a gift of God's grace, right? Jesus would say, because I live, you too will live. Because the Father loves me, He loves you. Where I go, I'm going to bring you so that you can be with me. What belongs to me belongs to you. So when we hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What what we're supposed to hear is Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, so that we would never be forsaken. There is only one forsaking. And Jesus has taken that forsaking. He has borne the weight, the guilt of all of our sin on the cross And he was forsaken so that we need never be if we would receive that gift of grace, right? We have to receive. As John said, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to be his children. God has for all the weight of all the sins of the world has been borne by Jesus, but we have to receive the reconciliation Because it takes two to be reconciled. And our part is just to trust in what Jesus has done for us. To believe and receive. So I don't know about you, but I, I think many of us, we know this experience of wondering if God has abandoned us. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Maybe you never had the courage to verbalize it, but maybe the question went through your head And you found your soul troubled and overwhelmed by the prospect as you looked at your life and your circumstances, wondering if God was really there. If He was really for you. Because maybe there's times when you would say, I just don't feel God. I don't see God in my life, in my circumstances. And you know what? There's no greater anguish than spiritual anguish. There's no greater anguish than spiritual anguish than fearing or worrying that God is not with you, that God is not for you, and even worse, that God is against you. Cancer is bad. Cancer sucks. Marital breakdown is bad. That sucks. Financial difficulties are hard. 
There is no anguish that is greater than, the, than spiritual anguish to look up and to not see God for you. To not know His favor. But when we look up, because Jesus was forsaken, we see one who's, we always, we always now see one whose hand of blessing, whose right hand rests on our head. Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, we're not really sure who wrote Hebrews. Whoever it was, this is what he wrote. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Isn't that a great promise if that's true? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And the author here is saying, like, that should make a difference in your life. That frees you from having to love money, which is to say, having to pursue security in your life, financial security, by accumulating for yourself. You no longer have to go and secure yourself by hoarding money. You can live contented lives knowing that God is for you and that He will never leave nor forsake you. That changes the way that you go through the circumstances of your life. It brings about contentment. In verse 6, the next words, Christian, you can throw up verse 6 there. He goes on to say, so we will say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Why, Why can we say that with confidence? Because we know that the Lord will never leave us. And how do we know that the Lord will never leave or forsake me? Because Jesus was forsook. Because he took it. And if Jesus was forsook, I don't even know if forsook's a word. I just used it. I just made it one. If Jesus was forsook, then all who have faith in him will never be forsaken because all there is left is the right hand of blessing and favor and forgiveness, and all there is left now is this confidence that can say, the Lord is my helper, no matter what I face, I need not be afraid. What can my circumstances or other people do to me? For the Lord is with me, who can be against me? That's what we're supposed to hear when we hear the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer was so that you and I would never need to be forsaken by God. That we could never feel, we never have to feel what he felt. So, do you lack that confidence today? Do you lack that contentment in some way in your life? Are you at a place in life, um, and may, maybe maybe you aren't, but maybe sometime you will be, where, where you might look up and you might like feel that you just can't see God's face or favor towards you? Do you feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? And then sometimes we try to find God in our circumstances or in our feelings, and, and we struggle to, 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 to kind of to, to, to get this sense of God's presence. I think what these words of Jesus show us is that what we really need to do is we need to look to the cross and we need to hear the cry of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if he cried those words, we never need to. That only gets cried once. If the hand, if the left hand 
that was supposed to be for us has now been placed on Jesus, then the right hand rests on us. The hand of favor is all that's left to rest on our head. So when we hear these words, we're reminded that because Jesus was forsaken, we are forgiven. Because Jesus was forsaken, we live in the favor of God. He will never forsake us. And I think as we come to this table, this table of communion, where we will receive the broken body of Jesus in the bread and the shed blood of Jesus in the cup, uh, it is... To me, like a, 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 a representation of, of this crossed arms. Okay? That's what's happening here. That's what this is about. Jesus took what belonged to us, and we are given what belongs to him. And so, as you take this bread and as you take this cup, um, and, and as, as the bread is being passed, we're just going to have a time of kind of quiet prayer and reflection. And I want you to talk with God. But, but as you take it, just Imagine God's right hand resting on your head. Imagine the hand of God's favor resting on you. Let's pray. Father, It is really impossible for us to grasp how big your love is for us as expressed in the cross. Lord, that you would look on us, people that had forsaken you, we had turned to our own way, we had made a God of ourselves, deserving nothing from you, but you loved us and you love us still and it was that love that caused you to send your son into the world. He came all the way and he did everything that was necessary on the cross and he bore that horror and he didn't shy away from just drinking the whole cup of your judgment on sin right down to the dredges at the bottom. And Father, that must have been hard for you to send your son and raise the sword. And Jesus, we thank you for your love for us that you laid yourself down, you weren't forced to, you weren't just sent on a mission against your will. This was your plan, and this was your desire. As it says in Hebrews, that it was for the joy set before you, Jesus, that you endured the cross. And we know the joy that was set before you that endured the cross was, was the joy of bringing us into a place of reconciliation with you, with your Father that we could know the freedom of forgiveness and we could just go through life with this confidence that we live in your favor and that we don't have to be afraid. And that even when death comes, we don't have to be afraid because we have a life that goes beyond the grave and even death cannot separate us from the love that is in you, Christ Jesus. And so we thank you, Father and Son, for your love represented at this table. We thank you for your hand that rests on us, Lord. If there's anyone in this room that needs to make their life right with you who has never um, turned
turned from their sin, repented of their sin, and put their trust in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, then I just pray that you would lay that need on their heart and that you would move them to take that step and to seek out someone to maybe help them get their life to you. But God, for those of us who have put our faith in you and have been made sons and daughters and have given all that belongs to to Jesus, God, we are just so grateful for all that you have done. And, and just, Lord, help us in all the circumstances that we're facing in life. Because I know some of us right now, we're in hard things. Some of us um, are, are, are maybe at a place where we're, we're in broken marriages or we're dealing with debilitating diseases or other sorts of uncertainties. And God, I just pray that you would remind us that you are for us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.